This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Last week, and you had the or had the chance to listen to last week's message. Um, you'll recall the title of the sermon. By the way, if you weren't here uh, last week, the title of the sermon was "What You're Supposed to Do." And we looked at Mark uh, chapter two, verses eighteen to twenty-eight, and we saw that in those verses, Jesus uses a string of almost a dozen parables. They're different parables, but they're all connected parables, in my opinion. And they're asking the question, what's a blank supposed to do? What's a physician, a doctor supposed to do? What's a seamstress supposed to do? What's a vintner supposed to do? You remember that if you were here. Um, so what's a doctor supposed to do? Heal the sick. What's a vintner supposed to do? Improperly store wine or properly store wine? Properly store wine. Um, what's a garment or a seamstress supposed to do? A seamstress supposed to do, right? Tear garments or mend them? A seamstress is supposed to mend them, yes. And Jesus, he kept stacking these uh, sorts of parables right on top of one another. And he was building up to the last two. Man, you know what's going on with this? He was building up to the last two. What's the son of humanity supposed to do or the son of man supposed to do? Just call some of humanity to himself or all of humanity to himself? And the answer, of course, was all. Call all of humanity to himself, including his traitorous cousins, cousin Levi Matthew. And he's, uh, what's, a, what's a Sabbath supposed to do? Burden humanity or restore humanity? And the answer, of course, is the Sabbath is supposed to restore humanity. And so you see, every person or everything can do what they're not supposed to do or what they're supposed to do. And it raised the question for us, how do we know? How do we know what we're supposed to do? How do we know? And the the passage gave us these two questions that we can always ask ourselves. One, does it tighten my walk with Jesus? And two, doesn't make me more like Jesus, right? And so uh, in any situation, in any scenario, we can ask ourselves those two questions to figure out if what we're doing is what we're supposed to be doing, right? Now, as you can see, the title of the sermon today is similar to last week's, but slightly different. The title here is what you're not supposed to do. And if I'm honest, I kind of cringe at this title. I'm the one who titled it, but it makes me cringe a little bit. Um, because frankly, when a lot of people think of Christians and a lot of people think of church, uh, that's all they're thinking of. Oh, you go to church on Sunday and uh, somebody's going to tell you what you shouldn't be doing, what you're not supposed to do, right? So I was cringing as I wrote the title, but the reality is, you know, I realized, hey, sometimes we need those sorts of sermons because, well, the scriptures themselves are often telling us the things we shouldn't do. So sometimes these kinds of sermons are called for. And so today's sermon is a little bit about that, about what we shouldn't do. 
I'm going to come at it, though, from a little bit of a different angle. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you, you know, why A, B, or C, or D is wrong and why you shouldn't do that. Instead, I want to invite you into sort of a web of scripture stories. And these stories, as we shall see, they give us an indication of what we're supposed to do and what we're not supposed to do. So let me frame this for you, all right? In today's focal passage, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see Jesus enter the synagogue in Capernaum. And we've already seen him do that before in this story. Earlier in Mark's story, he did an exorcism in the same synagogue in Capernaum. And for those of you who've been tracking, you've heard me say it so many times that when it comes to Mark's gospel, location is everything. Where something happens really matters. So here's a map that some of y'all have seen before. I've showed this uh, before. And what we see here is the Sea of Galilee or the Lake Galilee. And it's essentially, I've divided it into a quadrant, so four parts. And it's in the upper left part, the northwest part. This was a part overseen by this guy named Herod Antipas that we've talked about. Um, this is where the highest concentration of religious Jews lived up in that northwest region, that left quadrant. This was the hot spot for religious Jews in Jesus' day. It's where Capernaum is. You can see that there on the map. And in today's story, that's where Jesus is. It's where Levi Matthew, that toll collector we read about a couple weeks ago, it's where he lived. And it's where he worked for Herod Antipas collecting tolls along the Via Maris, the, the road to the sea there. And this is the same area where Jesus started his business, his fishing business, fishing for people, right? And that's where he lived, and it's where he worked. It's where I think Jesus had a house. It's the, the house where last week when we read, he was throwing a party. And it's the one in the scene before that where the people came and ripped some of the roof off and lowered a man through. So this is also where Jesus ministers among the highest concentration of religious Jews in this area. And so we also know that there's a contingent of scribes, as they're called, or scribes of the Pharisees. There's scribes of the Pharisaic stripe, and there are Pharisees of other religious positions there as well, not to mention just your average Pharisee. And Jesus interacts with them, and he has affinities with them, but he also has some differences and some of those differences make all the difference. Some of those differences are very, very profound. And that's what I want to draw our attention to today. We're going to get there in a moment. But first, I want to give us an analogy that we can work with. I think it'll help us maybe make sense of things, all right? We're going to turn in a moment to our focal passage, Mark 3, 1 to 6. And what we're going to see is essentially a showdown. We're going to see a showdown. It's a showdown of interpretations and a showdown of hearts. It's like two guys fighting over one girl. The girl, she's stuck in the middle, and the guys, they're on either side vying for her. So we're going to put it into a modern scenario. Let's say you go to the grocery store. You head to, head to Safeway, and you pull into your parking spot, 
and you get in an argument with somebody about parking spots because that's what happens here uh, on Oahu. You argue with people about parking spots. But you get your parking spot and you get out of the car. You start to head into Safeway. And as you're walking through the parking lot, you see two guys arguing over the same woman. She's in the middle of them. And it's a heated conversation. It's in public. It's intense. There's a guy on one side of her, a guy on the other side of her. She's stuck in the middle. What do you do? <laughs> what, do you what do you as a passerby do? You let it go and just go do your grocery shopping? You call the cops? You try to help remedy the situation? Let's just all imagine together for a moment that we choose option three together. We go over and we're going to try in this moment to try to help remedy the situation and make things better. And so imagine, right? You walk up, the three people are all there sort of arguing. And what's the first thing that comes out of your mouth? Can I jump in? No, right? Um, not something like that. You're probably going to say something like, I just want to ask, is every, everything okay here? Everything okay here? You keep imagining, just imagine for a second that they've all calmed down and they say very calmly, no, everything's not okay. And then they say, can you help us resolve this issue? Then what would be the next thing out of your mouth? Maybe something like, let me call my friend Lynn Iwashita. She'll, she'll come and help. Or, just kidding, maybe you say something like, yeah, maybe I can help. Can, can you tell me what's going on, right? Tell me what's going on. No, I'm doing this. Can you tell me what's going on? And what would need to happen next, right, is that each of the people in that scenario would need to share with you their perspective, the three perspectives of what's going on. Their interpretation of the events, they're going to need to give you their view of the background to all this, right? And once you've heard their three perspectives, you'd be able to hopefully understand where they're each coming from. And once you understood where each person was coming from, hopefully you'd be able to formulate some sort of helpful response. Does that make sense? Y'all tracking with me? Good, because that's precisely how we need to think about today's focal passage. We have Jesus on one side, a group of religious officials on the other side, and a man in the middle, cue Michael Jackson. And we enter this ancient story. It's taking place in an ancient synagogue, in ancient Capernaum. We enter it as modern passersby. And as we do, we come up to Jesus, we come up to these officials, and the man in the middle, and we ask, hey, Y'all, is everything okay here? And we give each a moment, span, we give each a moment to tell their side of the story. So we're going to do that. That's what we're going to do in today's sermon, all right? We're going to give each of these groups a chance to tell their side of the story. So to lead into that, we're just going to look at the beginning of the focal passage. Here's how it starts, y'all. Mark 3. One through six is how it starts. Mark, the narrator, begins, and he entered into the synagogue. We're talking about Jesus. And a person was there. We could say man if we want. And a person was there while having a withered hand. And they, that is the religious officials, kept watching him. 
Now, the him could refer to the man or to Jesus, but and they kept watching him. If on the Sabbath he, Jesus, will heal him, then they shall accuse him. The Greek's kind of crazy here. Uh, it's a little bit hard to keep up with. And he said to the person, to the one having the withered hand, Jesus said this, rise into the middle. Interesting story. So a few points and then back to that analogy real quick. The first verse, Jesus enters the synagogue again, indicating he's been here before again and again. There's a person there with a physical difference, a withered up hand or a dried up hand. And in my opinion, just like the officials have been doing thus far in Mark's gospel, they planted this man here as a trap for Jesus. They planted him here. They went out and got him, and they planted him here to see if Jesus is going to heal him on the Sabbath, which means that Jesus is going to violate the Sabbath so that they can make accusations against Jesus on the Sabbath. And so in verse 2, the the officials who've planted the man here, they're keeping a close eye, I think, on their man, seeing what their man does. Some translations make it seem like they keep an eye on Jesus. Maybe that's the case. I, I think the, the Greek is ambiguous here. It could go either way. But I think they're keeping an eye on the man that they planted there and also keeping an eye on Jesus to see what's going to happen, to see whether the man is going to get Jesus' attention and follow through on the plan or not. But what they ultimately want to see is, as I said, if Jesus will heal this guy on the Sabbath and from their view violate the Sabbath. And if Jesus does... They'll have some proof to make an accusation against Jesus. And Jesus, not one to shy away from controversy, he knows the officials' plans. He knows what they're doing. He can tell. They've been planting people in his path since the story started, since Mark's story started, since day one. This is just like every other day. Jesus knows what's up. Now, in the synagogues in antiquity, uh, as well as the churches, it was common to have seating 360 degrees around a room, right? So y'all would be in a circle or it'd be in an octagon kind of shape and the speakers would be down in the middle. And that's what's going on here when he says, rise up into the middle, right? Uh, and, and then we get this, verse four. And he said to them, Jesus, is it at one's discretion on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save life or destroy? The answer is obviously, no, it's not at our discretion. And Mark picked back up and he says, well, those ones were keeping silent. (laughs) They don't answer Jesus' question. Is it at one's discretion on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save life or destroy? And so we have our scene set up. Just like the scene in the Safeway parking lot, you have these three parties here in the synagogue. Jesus on one side the religious officials on the other side, and the man in the middle with the withered hand. Can you imagine the tension in the room, in that synagogue? Can you imagine the tensions in that man's emotions? He's caught between those two parties. Now, me and you, let's enter the synagogue together. We see this happening. And we walk up to them, just like we did in the Safeway parking lot, and we ask, guys, Everything okay here? Everything all right in the synagogue? And the man with the withered hand answers, he says, I don't think so. Could you help us? (laughs) And we reply, yeah, we we can try. 
can try. Can you, each of you, tell me, tell us what's going on from just your own perspective? And each party agrees that that's what we'll do. Man. The religious officials, the scribes and the Pharisees, they go first. And they say this, look, to us, it's all very, very simple. God gave us commands, and we're supposed to keep those commands. It's especially true of the Sabbath. God created for six days, and on the Sabbath, he rested. And we're supposed to be like God and do the same. We have a high regard for the Sabbath, they say, just like Moses did. You remember, right, in Exodus 31, 14 to 15, what Moses said. He said, observe the Sabbath because it's holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it is to be put to death. Those who do any work on that day must be cut off from their people. For six days, work is to be done. But the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day is to be put to death. And then, they, and then they go, and you know also what Numbers 15, 32 to 36 says, right? And then they go, while the Israelites were in the wilderness, a man was found gathering wood on the Sabbath day. Those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly. And they kept him in custody because it was not clear what should be done to him. And then the Lord said to Moses, the man must die. The whole assembly must stone him outside the camp. <laughs> so the assembly took him outside the camp and stoned him to death. As the Lord commanded Moses. So that's, that's our issue, the, the religious officials say. We just are obeying the scriptures. Jesus is violating the Sabbath by working on it. And just like the man gathering wood, hey, Jesus, punishment should be death. Death by stoning. We don't see any other way around it. That's, that's what the text says. That's the solution. That's what we believe we're supposed to do. Jesus needs to pay the price. He needs to die. And so we've got the religious officials' perspective. What about the man in the middle? I have to fill in a, little of the, a few of the gaps here with sort of a midrash, right? A filling in of the gaps. Um, it might sound something like this. I'm just imagining this. The man in the middle goes, now look, I have respect for our religious officials. They've studied, they've been around, they've forgotten about scripture, more scripture than I'll ever know. Right? So when they came and got me today and told me that they needed my help, a huge shock to me, how could I reject their offer? They didn't quite tell me what they needed from me, but they told me if I helped them, I might get healed. So I jumped at the chance, but now here I am in the synagogue in the middle of this tension, and I'm not sure I want to be. Do I want my hand to get yet better? Yeah, I do, but, and then just then, Jesus, visibly frustrated, interrupts the man with a gesture. Mark describes it this way, and after looking around at them with wrath, while being sad about the hardness of their heart, he said to the person, stretch out the hand. Jesus cuts the man off with a gesture and a comment. The man is mid-sentence. 
Jesus hears him say, I want my hand healed, but, and that's enough for Jesus. The look on his face as he looks around the room, he scans the room, he pans the room, this is one of wrath, one of sadness. And a lot of y'all have heard me say many times, wrath is not the same thing as anger. We often conflate those two things. There are two different things in scripture. Wrath is a desire to be absent out of a situation. Anger is an internal emotion. Jesus is experiencing wrath. He wants to be out of this scenario. He wants it to be over. Jesus is in what's supposed to be God's house, and he wants to leave the presence of these officials. He's sad about how they view this man and how they view God's law. He said He's sad that what they're doing from his vantage point, they're not supposed to be doing, what you're not supposed to do. More on that in a moment. So as, as good mediators, you and I, we're standing there and we say to Jesus, well, Jesus, look, we heard from the officials. We heard them tell their side of things. I got some points, quoting scripture. They appealed to Exodus 31 and uh, Numbers 13. They got a point. And we've heard this man's perspective. He had no idea this, this morning that today would play out like this for him. But Jesus, we haven't heard your perspective. Can you share it with us? Jesus obliges. And he says, I can cite Exodus all day as well. (laughs) In the first half of Exodus, especially Exodus 4 through 14, we read all about Pharaoh, don't we? Nearly 20 times the story of Exodus says that Pharaoh had a hard heart. God was not the causer of that, but he was the cause. Pharaoh himself wanted to be God, but God kept showing him a Pharaoh that's not possible. And that caused Pharaoh's heart to be hard toward God. The officials right here, they're like Pharaoh and his Egyptians. And when Moses led God's people out of Egypt across the Red Sea, God spoke to him and he told Moses, Moses, stretch out the hand. You hear the echo. And Moses did. And when Moses stretched out the hand, the people got up and walked in the middle. You hear the echo. In the middle. They walked in the middle of the sea and they crossed into the newness of life. And so what have I just done, y'all? Like God, my father, I've called this man with the withered hand to stretch out the hand, just like Moses, up into the middle of the sea and walk into the newness of life. And when the officials heard this, right, they're furious because Jesus is comparing them to Pharaoh. They interrupt and say, do you hear what Jesus just said about us, mediator? Do you hear what Jesus just said about us? He compared himself to God, one, but do you hear what he called us? He didn't call us Pharisees, he called us Pharaohs. But us, being really good mediators, we, we say, look, religious officials, you had your turn to speak. Don't interrupt, right? Let Jesus, let Jesus finish. You had your turn to finish. So Jesus continues. Look, they cited Exodus. I can cite Exodus. They cited Numbers. Let me cite Deuteronomy. It's a battle of interpretations, a showdown of interpretations. Jesus says, we all know Deuteronomy 30, don't we? Deuteronomy. 
there, God, who through Moses has led the Israelites out of Egypt, uh, out of exile in Egypt, tells them, look, Israelites, if y'all don't do what you're supposed to do, namely keep the covenant with me, you'll end up right back in exile again. Jesus says, you remember that, right? Verse 15 and following says this, look, I set before you today life and good. Life and good, death and evil. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. And then you will live and increase your offspring, and the Lord your God will bless you. That is, have you as part of his household in the land you are entering to possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and cursings. Now, choose life so that you and your children may live. And so today, everyone in the synagogue has a choice to make, good or evil, life or death. These officials, Jesus says, they're they're choosing death. They Today, right, today alone, they have misused God's house, plotting and scheming in God's house. They've mistreated God's people, especially this man with the withered hand and me. They've misinterpreted God's story by choosing death over life, and they've misappropriated God's scripture by comparing what's happening here to a guy gathering wood, and soon enough, they're going to misalign with government officials that they hate, the Herodians who are waiting outside the door. They're going to go meet with them and plot to have me killed. That's their choice. They're choosing death and evil on the Sabbath. But I've chosen good on the Sabbath, Jesus says. I didn't plant this man here like as a decoy like they did. But I am here and I want to help him. I want good for him. I've chosen life for him on this Sabbath. And Jesus goes, as y'all have heard me say, the son of humanity is Lord over the Sabbath. It exists to be life-giving to me and beneficial to all humans, not to burden them. Today, everyone has a choice. Choose evil or good. Choose life or death. What do you choose? Stretch out your hand or don't. And here's what Mark tells us. Where'd it go? And after looking around, oh, Jesus said, stretch out the hand. And after exiting, straight away, the Pharisees began giving counsel with the Herodians against him, that is Jesus, in order that they might destroy him or kill him. So the man stretches out his hand. It's restored. The man chose life. He heard both sides of the story. He heard the religious officials give their interpretation. He heard Jesus give his interpretation. He heard the officials choose evil and death. And he heard Jesus choose good and life. And he chose the same thing as Jesus. This was a showdown of interpretations, a showdown of hearts. And one of the coolest things hidden here in between the lines of this story is that we don't hear what the man did next, y'all. In this verse, we don't hear what the man did next. We don't hear what Jesus did next. We're left to assume that they stay in the synagogue together. Jesus gifts this man, not just with a healing, 
but with the ministry of presence, like being present with him. What do the ministers of the day do? Mark ends the story by telling us they exit to go plot Jesus' murder. Their death-dealing interpretation plays itself out in real life. Their hermeneutic has real-life consequences. That's our word of the week, hermeneutic. A hermeneutic is a lens through which one interprets. In this story, part of the, the point is the religious officials have a hermeneutic slanted toward focusing on the bad, evil, and death, while Jesus has a hermeneutic slanted toward focusing on good and life. And it raises the question for everyone engaging the story, right? Which hermeneutic do we tend to side with? Or do we side with? You see, Jesus didn't have a problem with the Old Testament law itself. It was a good thing. The problem was how the law was being handled and interpreted, appropriated. The law was meant to be life-giving, but it was used to keep people from living. One scholar put it this way. The religious officials, their interpretation would have kept the man crippled. Don't heal on the Sabbath. Their interpretation kept people hungry. Don't pick grain. Their interpretation kept people in mourning, fast, and wail. Their interpretation kept people in sin and excluded. Don't hang out with those kinds of people. Their attempt to keep the law and build a hedge around it actually prevented them from the intent, the original intent of the law. What was the intent? To reveal God's goodness to reveal good, to give life. And so on this day, as we hear this word, we go back to the title of the sermon, what you're not supposed to do. What is it, according to this story, that we're not supposed to do? There are a few things. They all start with the prefix M-I-S, miss. Misuse God's house or households like the officials did. We're not supposed to do that. Rest assured, there are a lot of people who do that. And so many times it's rooted in a sort of hard-heartedness. Or we might say hard heart-mind. Because in Scripture, right, the heart and mind, they're intimately connected and they're not separable. You can't really separate them. So instead of just talking about the heart, we talk about the heart-mind. Some folks have a hard heart-mind. Now, contrary the popular opinion. The opposite of a hard heart isn't a soft heart. The opposite of a hard heart mind isn't a soft heart mind. The opposite of a hard heart or hard heart mind is a surrendered heart mind. Let me explain. A hard heart mind or a hard heart is one that is closed off. It's closed off to God. It's kept from God, and it's hostile toward God. That's a hard heart or a hard heart mind, like Pharaoh. A surrendered, a surrendered heart mind is one that's fully given to God, and it's hospitable toward God, like Jesus. And, and many people walk around thinking they don't have a hard heart or a hard heart mind, but the reality is they've kept their heart or parts of their heart from God, and they have some hostility toward God that builds up and even to God's people. And so we see this when people make God's house about them, right? Like the religious officials doing. It all comes back to them. 
Everything's about them, what they want, what they prefer, what they need. And when we're in God's house, right, all eyes should be on God. Anything taking attention off that, right? Preachers can do that. <laughs> Congregants can do that. How many churches have we had people arguing about the carpet and the color of the walls and like stupid things? Right? This can happen all the time when we misuse God's house. We can use, misuse God's house as a form of manipulation. When we come into God's house, we're not supposed to misuse it. With regards to God's people, we're not supposed to mistreat them. In this story, the officials are, are trying to have Jesus for lunch. <laughs> they mistreat him in the synagogue, and when they leave the synagogue, they begin plotting his death. And Jesus exposes it. He exposes the death-driven hermeneutic they have. They're also mistreating, obviously, the man with the hand issue. They use him. They plant him there as a scheme. They don't care about him. He's just a ploy. He, and Jesus knows what's up. And so in spite of how that man's being treated, even in the midst of others doing wrong, Jesus does the right thing. He does what he's supposed to do. And there's something so real and raw and profound about that. How are you treating God's people? How are you treating God's people? Or how are you treating people? How are we treating one another? Here, we're a small church family. We, every single one of us in the room, even those who aren't here with us, we all have issues and problems and frustrations and so on. We all have quirks and oddities. But how are we treating one another? Are we present with one another? Do we let people be present with us? I mentioned a moment ago, Jesus engages in the ministry of presence. When the officials walk out to start plotting Jesus' death, Jesus presumably stays behind with the man. He's present with him. And sometimes, y'all, that presence counts more than anything. Sometimes it's not what we have to say in the midst of a situation, but just that we're present. When someone's grieving, we just grieve with. Don't try to fix. Y'all hear that? When someone's grieving, we grieve with and don't try to fix. When someone's hurting, don't just rush in to alleviate the pain. Sit with them in the pain and shut up. When someone's lonely or depressed or discouraged, don't try to take Jesus' job and be the great physician. Just sit and be present. When someone's rejoicing, be present. I'm convinced of this. If the Bridge Church really wants to live into like deep community, it is going to require the ministry of presence. What's crucial to the success of deep community is deep presence. It's being there with one another, for one another, 
showing up to let us grieve with one another. Deep community requires a ministry of deep presence. And that looks like a lot like being there for one another, not mistreating one another. If we side with Jesus in this story, just like the man with the healed hand did, then we also must believe that it matters how we interpret scripture. It really matters, y'all. In real life, it matters. It is in many ways how we interpret scripture a matter of good and evil, life and death. What we're not supposed to do is misinterpret, misappropriate, misquote scripture. It's a serious thing to do with serious ramifications. Hang with me right here. You see how the officials' interpretation, their hermeneutic, led them to plot death on a Sabbath day. It led them to sort of ignore the plank in their own eye. They wanted to get Jesus killed on the Sabbath for violating the Sabbath while they're off planning his death row sentence on the Sabbath. And this is why, y'all, I teach and preach the way I do. Because in a world where biblical illiteracy runs rampant, I want y'all to know your scriptures. I want y'all to be about deep study. In a world where preachers know that to get and keep large crowds, they got to give Sunday morning motivational speeches, hey, I'm not about that. I'm not about that. If you come to the bridge, when I'm preaching, what you're going to hear from the pulpit is deep study, period. Why? Because interpretation matters. It can be a matter of good and evil, life and death. We have a candidate running for governor right now who was raised in the church of the Nazarene. And he's a very loud voice in our state right now, the loudest maybe, the loudest voice in our state right now for killing Hawaii babies. His interpretation is off. And it's literally a matter of life and death. Literally. A matter of life and death. Literally. We have a society that renames baby murder to women's rights, and many Christians are okay with it and attempt to use scripture to make such a case. But what does Jesus say? You have evil and good set before you today. You have death and life set before you today. What will you choose? Choose life. That's what Jesus says. And if it sounds like this is political, it's because it is. Everything, you cannot read Jesus' story and ignore the political side of it. Everything that he said and did had political ramifications. That's why he got killed. Politics. Listen, we have a, a society that is deceiving our kids, y'all. It's driven by big pharma, medical companies linked to social media outlets, pushing the agenda that, hey, if we can get these young kids to believe that they're transgender and to follow through with medical procedures to prove it, those companies stand to make hundreds of thousands of dollars off of each young body to be guinea pigs. We have adults in our government signing off on it. 
It's literally a matter of good and evil, life and death. I, I read a report, I heard a report this week, just came out in a scientific journal, not a Christian thing, a real academic science journal, and it's talking about how transgender reassignments or surgeries are skyrocketing among our teenagers in this country. Since 2019, it's just, and in this report, it's saying that the overwhelming majority of people getting these surgeries are 12 to 16 years old. And the overwhelming majority of the demographic getting the surgeries is young girls who believe they're boys. They're being, they're getting double mastectomies as 12 year olds. And it's irreversible. And the young boys are getting chemical castrations and it's irreversible. Literally, it is a matter of good and evil, life and death. Literally. And so we have a society telling our kids that the, the coolest thing is <laughs> the latest thing, the greatest thing is to be gay. And many religious officials are coming along and baptizing that narrative and calling it good. And then you have people like me standing up and saying, hold the phone. No, it's not good. It's not holy. It's not what will lead to good. It's not what will lead to life. And I'm the bad guy. And people have it twisted. <laughs> they view me as the one in the wrong, right? But they're the ones with the hermeneutic that leads to death and not life. The whole society doing what it's not supposed to do. Misinterpreting, misquoting, <laughs> misappro misappropriating, rejecting, denying. It's frustrating, it's sad, it's heartbreaking. One more miss word here, misalign with those antagonistic toward God and his people. In this story, the Pharisees, or as Jesus might imply, the Pharisees, go out and align themselves after all this with the Herodians. The Herodians, they were agents, employees of Herod Antipas. Levi used to work with them. There were probably figures who settled court issues, disputes, rendered legal verdicts. They were sworn enemies of the Pharisees, the Herodians were. Sworn enemies. But the Pharisees go and they see them to see if they can get the Herodians on board and they'll have Jesus as a common enemy. They misalign, the Pharisees do, they misalign themselves with those who aren't God's people. You see, they had a chance to align with good, with life, with God, with his people, but they chose instead to align with those antagonistic toward God and his people. And I dare say the same thing happens today. We all have choices. Who are we going to align with or misalign with? Because who we choose to align with is of great significance. And we go back to our two questions from last week. When it comes to who we align with, how do we know if we're supposed to or not? Does it tighten our walk with Jesus? Does it make us more like him? Goes for friends, jobs, political parties, spouses, 
any arena of relationship. And let me just tell you, who we invest our time with, just like how we interpret, has major ramifications for our lives. So we go back to this synagogue in Capernaum. We've heard the religious officials and we've seen them walk out. We've heard from the man and we, we, we've seen him side with Jesus and we've heard from Jesus or we've seen Jesus stay with the man and the question confronts us then, what are we gonna do? Are we gonna follow them out or are we gonna stay with Jesus? <laughs> or are we gonna, the way the sermon title, what are we supposed to do? Well, we're not supposed to align with those who misuse God's house, mistreat God's people, miss appropriate, misquote scripture, and we're not supposed to align with those who misalign with folks that are antagonistic toward God's people. We're not supposed to have a hermeneutic that's death dealing. I say this, we're not supposed to leave people. We are, however, supposed to stay with Jesus, walk behind Jesus, and get covered in the dust of our rabbi and become more like him. Become holy as he's holy. And I'm ending here. And in a world that increasingly wants you and wants your attention, wants what you've got, here's the reality. Here's what we're supposed to do. Not supposed to do. Bail. We're not supposed to bail. Don't bail on Jesus like the officials did. Don't bail on people in need, that man, like the officials did. Stick with Jesus. It's the bottom line. Easy. Simple. Stick with Jesus. Amen? Stan, let me bless you. If you would, turn your palms upright and receive this benediction. And now, brothers and sisters, may you go forth with boldness and courage and the utmost devotion May you follow in the dust of Rabbi Jesus and stick with him. Amen, brothers and sisters. Go in peace.